Hi, really good friends. Before we get into this week's episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wake. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Hello. Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. Welcome. Velcome. Is that a language? Welcome in sure. Bienvenue. Yep. You don't did you, it. You don't know cabaret. No. Uh, I do not. Uh, a musical. Oh uh, well, I kn- no. Okay, I've heard of it. I don't know the re- this, that reference to it. Oh, it's uh, just a song where uh, the <laughs> MC says like hello to the audience and and oh. welcomes them. Oh, how nice! How mm-hmm. lovely! Thank you. And well, thank you. It's a bilingual moment. Okay, it, that's the only moment. What do you mean? It, That's the only part of that song or show where they speak a different language? No, 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 no. Because I believe it oh. takes place in Germany. Okay, okay, okay. In one of their one of the Berlins, like before the wall comes down, maybe. Okay, sure, sure. Or is that Spring Awakening? Spring Awakening also takes place in Germany. In Germany, okay. Um, it could also, be both. I believe it was banned in Germany, so probably it it feels more like then it was one of the Berlins. Spring Awakening was. I believe so, yes. Wow, that's kind of ironic. It is, it is. How are you? I'm good, how are you? A a lot has happened since we last talked. Ranger turned two. (gasps) Happy birthday, Ranger. Ranger, my, my dog, for those that don't know Ranger, Ranger is my dog. He just turned two. He's growing up. He no longer wants to like cuddle with me all of a sudden he's like too much of a a big boy he found his voice he's doing a lot of speaking mm. recently he's just growing up and i don't care for it um yeah it's a little heartbreaking but i'm gonna adapt i'm gonna be a good dad i'm gonna you're gonna going to with- be you are not a good dad right now <laughs> no i you've ranger turned two and you're like all right it's time for me to step up yeah finally let's get let's get the act together that yeah. makes sense mm-hmm. yeah it feels like now's a good time because he, he's speaking up more he needs mm-hmm. your attention and i'm really glad you've decided to give it to him and desperately I don't, he, he needs it he could rat me out now he could tell mm, on me and i don't need people true. knowing you know right that's mm-hmm. true yeah, no snitches in this family. No. For anybody <laughs> listening, please know I spoil my dog so much. Oh, yes. That's Love the, that's of my the life. basis of this 
of this joke is that Jared, um, I've never seen a dog that is as well cared for as Ranger. He's also incredibly well behaved. I consider him to be my dog nephew and Mm -hmm. I love him very much. Mm -hmm. I miss him and a happy birthday, but he is, yes, the most spoiled boy in the world. Ever in the history of the world. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was the, that was like the biggest thing going on for me was Ranger's birthday and, you know, which is like a, feels like such milestone. a small thing to no, be milestone. the biggest thing going on for me but it was it was a big moment oh i'm happy for you i know it's like and, and this is not a comparison at all but like really caring for pets is very difficult like you do learn i think mm-hmm. new things along the way there was definitely a time when we first adopted nora in the first few months She's like a chronic illness and like we had mm-hmm. to bring her to the vet like a bunch of times and I had never, neither of us had ever had cats before and mm-hmm. we we're like, maybe this isn't for us. And now she's like the love of my life and I would probably like jump in front of a train for her. Mm-hmm. So it, pet parenting is a journey. <laughs> it truly is. And you know what? Maybe harder than raising children. I'll say uh, it. Yeah, I can confidently say it. <laughs> we we can be martyrs for the cause that yeah. I don't want to hear any more about how difficult it is to raise children Mm -hmm. for their whole lives Mm -hmm. it's just as hard if not harder to care for a pet all right Mm -hmm. yeah so the parents we're all keeping something alive and if you've got plans that counts that counts too Mm -hmm. plant parents yeah plant parents yes you know planned parenthood plant parenthood (laughs) oh my god we should open a greenery trademark plant Plant, plant parenthood. parenthood. Nobody steal that. We said trademarked. It's ours. <laughs> if Plant Parenthood exists already, let's talk. Let's. We love it. Let we'll do an ad for you. Let's. We would. We really would. We would love to. I. As long as you are also pro Planned Parenthood. Right. 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 That that has to be the condition. It can't be like a weird reverse meme, unfunny mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. joke. Mm-hmm. If you're if we're all in on it. Mm-hmm. We support Plant Parenthood and Plant Parenthood. Yes, I would yes. agree. Okay, I'm oh so my glad. Gosh. Yeah, me too. What's Parenthood is hard. The end of story. Yes. Period. Full Very stop. Very much so. What do you want? Do you have anything you want to talk about? Anything you want to I, update? I honestly don't really remember what's gone on the past week. So I, um, ignorance um, is I bliss. Get, yeah, truly. I guess nothing that meaningful. Great. has happened good or bad um i good. i think so i'm gonna say it was a good week okay not too not too much to update well we are in the last we're recording week a podcast of, we're, we're recording a podcast and we're <laughs> in the last week of pride month so that's another big thing we're right. wrapping down pride month we are coming to an end that doesn't mean that you know pride is over you you, you don't have to then go go and not support queer people let's continue that Let's trend. definitely continue that. I think, um, although I will say it, it's obviously been my understanding that both this podcast as well as any queer identity just disappears as the cicadas do for mm-hmm. a while until someone, someone, yeah, like acknowledges queer existence mm-hmm. or until like Dave Chappelle says something again. How many corporations do you think their icons on social media are going to oh, go right back to every single one everybody yeah keep an eye out for that keep, like if you know that a corporation has a rainbow mm-hmm. version of an icon on social media in the next few days like really just uh, what it's 
Friday is July 1st. So keep, keep, a, keep a lookout for mm-hmm. what Definitely. icons go back and what don't, which yeah, ones don't. You can honestly send them to us, like screenshot as yeah. you're hearing this episode and then check yeah. again. Definitely keep us updated because I would love to see that. Yeah. Oh, let's call it some corporations. Yeah. I can't wait to be angry this weekend. Mm-hmm. So please just keep them coming. I don't even have a transition from that. Do you want to just get into our stories for this week? Should f- we get into our stories? Do we even want to? Should we just <laughs> we end even, it here? I think we should do it. I think at least my story this week, I wanted to end things on a on a high note. End things on a nice, good, cheerful, cheerful mode. So we can bring that in. Okay. What about yours? Is yours going to be a, a downer? I would say mine. No, I would say mine is more positive than past weeks have been. Okay, I mean, that's a low bar, but I'm excited to hear right. about it. Somehow I keep okay. telling the most tragic stories. You know, maybe we should have had a little bit more self-awareness when we decided to do a queer history podcast, acknowledging mm-hmm. that probably a lot of queer history may not be the most uplifting. No. So that's okay. I think you're going to start us, though. Yeah, so let's... we'll still be able to end... On a high note. A little bit higher, maybe? Here's Here's to hoping. Okay, and if not, I'll sing really high-pitched for you all. Oh, I hope that's what happens. Okay. I really hope that's <laughs> okay. what we do. Okay. Okay. Okay, take it away. So this week, I'm going to be talking to you about the public universal friend. And mm. I don't want to give too much away because the story is just so juicy. So, so let's just get into it. Okay. The... Sources that I used this week are an article by an author named Siobhan for Autostraddle. The title of that article gives away every aspect of the story, so I refuse to read it. Okay, that the title of that publication is also so interesting. Autostraddle but... is a queer yeah. publication. A queer... Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, go check okay. out Autostraddle. Okay. Besides Siobhan's article, I used the Public Universal Friends Wikipedia page, Mm -hmm. Life Story, the Public Universal Friend from the New York Historical Society, and the Public Universal Friend episode from NPR's Throughline. The Public Universal Friend is born on November 29th, 1752 in Cumberland, Rhode Island, They're the eighth of 12 children to Amy and Jeremiah Wilkinson and are a part of the family's fourth generation to be in Northern America. Their great-grandfather emigrated from England about 100 years prior in 1650 and was an officer in the British Royal Army and was active in the colonial government. Mm. The public universal friend is assigned female at birth and named Jemima after one of the biblical Job's daughters. I don't know much about the Bible, but this is... It's in the Old Testament. Okay. So the friend, as I'll call them for short, is born into this Orthodox Quaker household. And their Mm. father, Jeremiah, attends traditional worship with the Society of Friends, aka the Quakers, quite regularly. And because of the friend's father's commitment to his religion... The friend themselves is pretty religiously devout as a child and an avid reader, memorizing large passages from both the Bible and key Quaker texts. They're 
often able to recite these religious passages and then debate the subject matter with adults around them. And they're incredibly well-spoken in their arguments and their discussions from like a really young age. Mm-hmm. On a more humanizing note, at least to me, because I'm not really a religious person and can't connect deeply with, you know, a Quaker in the 18th century. Right. The friend who, to picture them, has fine black hair and dark eyes, also has an athletic build from a young age, which lends itself to the friend's interest in horses and horseback riding, which I think is something mm-hmm. we kind of see quite common with queer people, which is really interesting to me that they kind of gravitate towards horses and like horseback riding. The friend is a pretty adept rider and takes a liking to the quote unquote spirited horses, ensuring that these animals receive proper and good care. So they are really just like, they care about living things and living animals mm-hmm. and, and want the best for these animals. Right. Especially ones, notably, that may have been otherwise neglected. Exactly. We love that. Especially in the 1700s. Yeah. They probably just like shooting horses that aren't like doing what they want, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah. We'll say that's true. (laughs) So not much else is known about the friend's childhood other than that their mother passes away when they're somewhere between the age of 8 and 12. So really formative years for an adolescent. Mm -hmm. But by the mid-1770s, a new religious group called the New Light Baptists come into town. And so this group is an intensely religious group whose leaders make these impassioned speeches and encourage a radical approach to worshiping God, which attracts the friend who, at this point in their early 20s, is becoming bored and disillusioned with the Quakers, who, you know, at this point are less focusing on their radical roots and more so on their appearance of respectability and maintaining its Mm self-image. And for those who don't live in the United States or, or in, in America, the Quakers were a religious group that were outcast from the Protestants mm-hmm. for being, you know, more progressive and liberal and, and like different, but they were seen as, you know, morally corrupt and religiously like sinners mm-hmm. that are going to hell. And so the friend begins attending New Light Baptist meetings more and more and Quaker meetings less and less and is becoming really interested in the more modern preachings of individual enlightenment. And because of this, the friend is actually disciplined by the Quakers for their absence and in February of 1776 is disowned by the local chapter. And just to give some familial context, the friend's sister, Patience, is also dismissed from the Society of Friends, the Quakers, around the same time for having an illegitimate child, and the public universal friend's brothers, Stephen and Jephthah, are both dismissed by the Pacifist Society in May of 1776 for training for military service. A couple things. One fantastic name, Jephthah. Love that. Jephthah. I really do love that. Yeah. Another thing is, like, mm, you're not going to have many people left if you're just kind of kicking them out for stuff. Especially in 1776. <laughs> We're fighting, you're like, you know? You're like, the, no. The country is... I know we have these really strong-held pacifist convictions, but I'm willing to to literally die for them. You must have, because... That was the option. That was the alternative. Right. There's a revolution happening. (laughs) No good choices. (laughs) Right. So it's either sit by and do nothing or like try to take part in it. So the brothers are like, we're going to try to take part. And the Quakers are like, "Mm, okay, see ya. Goodbye. You're not a Quaker. Good luck. Which it seems like the brothers are kind of like 
fine. And so actually pretty quickly after joining the New Light Baptists, so basically by the fall of 1776, the friend is becoming dissatisfied with their preachings. Mm -hmm. So they're just like constantly searching for these new ideologies and new ways of thinking about theology. Also in the fall of 1776, an epidemic disease hits the town of Cumberland, Rhode Island, and the friend contracts the disease, which is likely believed to be typhus. The friend is bedridden and instantly is running a high fever, which only gets like worse and worse until mm. the friend is basically on their deathbed, oh like gosh. truly inches away from death. It's and so wild to me that like before Tylenol existed, you could just like die from a fever. I mean, obviously there was something that was causing the fever, like whatever infection you had. But like now if you have a high fever, you're going to the hospital. And then it was like, mm -hmm. see ya. Sorry about that. It was nice right. knowing you. So basically the next part of this is, is truly up for debate. But some say that the friend briefly dies while mm -hmm. some say that the friend dies for like a few full minutes. And some say that the friend never died at all, but was only like close to death. Okay. Either way, the family summons the nearest doctor who is six miles away <laughs> and the neighbors have to keep a death watch at night. It's like everyone's basically like uh this person's gonna die like right. let's just let's just wait for it to happen because the doctor by the time he gets here right like, oh, we just like know. don't know well also a death watch that i would not want that job the, the, <laughs> i would like, also not want that if i was sick like oh they're setting up the death watch for yeah me? Oh, like the nighttime shift on the death watch jeez yeah, i know <laughs> it's not it's <laughs> like, not pl it's not a good experience straws. for anyone no but no matter how close or not to death they may have been, miraculously, after several days of this intense sickness, the fever breaks. And when they emerge from their deathbed, the friend claims that Jemima Wilkinson has died, having received revelation from God through two archangels who proclaimed there was, quote, room, room, room in the many mansions of eternal glory for thee and everyone, end quote. They continue proclaiming that Jemima Wilkinson's body has been reanimated by God as this holy messenger, the public universal friend, and that this messenger is not male, not female, but genderless. They live only to serve God and a gender doesn't further this directive. Mm -hmm. So basically, they embrace this non-binary status. Right in this new awakening right also another controversial take then for this episode is if servants of god themselves then are meant to be non-binary or otherwise gender fluid does that mm -hmm. mean god would be non-binary or gender fluid i would say you have a pretty strong argument i would say i do as well carry on i will <laughs> so the name public universal friend seems to reference the designation the society of friends the quakers use for members who travel from community to community to preach and they call these people public friends from this awakening on though the public universal friend refuses to answer to the name they were given at birth and ignore or chastise anyone who insists on using it mm -hmm. The friend also asks not to be referred to with gendered pronouns, and in the 1700s, people listen. They actually listen. Amazing. So this argument that people use that 
being non-binary or being gender fluid in the modern time. Mm-hmm. Maybe not such a modern concept after right. all. And one not so hard to grasp, I would right. argue. Not super revolutionary. Mm. So at first, some people believe that this fever has affected the friend's brain and thus making them think they're this genderless spirit inhabiting a dead body. But not long after, the friend wins over pretty much everyone around them and convinces them of their story. And so people respect the friend's wishes, only referring to them as the public universal friend or short forms such as the friend or puff, P-U-F. Mm-hmm. Many people avoid using gender-specific pronouns even in their private diary entries, although some people insist on using masculine he-him pronouns for the friend, but this still shows that even in a private setting, in a place where the friend like will never see what these people are writing, people are still being decent and respectful and using gender-neutral pronouns. Mm-hmm. Upon being asked if they were male or female, the friend would say, quote, I am that I am, end quote. The response also to when someone would criticize the friend's appearance or outfits. They dress in what is perceived to be either androgynous or more masculine attire in long clerical robes, often black, and would wear a white or purple kerchief around the neck like men of the time. They don't wear a hair cap indoors like women of this era, and outdoors they wear broad-brimmed, low-crowned beaver hats like those of Quaker men. So pretty fashionable, I would say. Yeah, I, pretty, I, I would agree. I don't know what a beaver hat is, but sounds fun. Sounds fancy. They also notably make conscious changes to their voice, speaking in this newly quote-unquote androgynous tone, alternately described as clear and harmonious and unearthly and croaking, depending on the observer. So either way, it seems like the voice is fluctuating between, you know, what people would consider traditionally feminine or masculine, and people are unable to then further identify gender based on what they think a voice sounds like. Right. And so the friend begins traveling on horseback and preaching throughout the states of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. They're accompanied by their brother, Stephen, and their sisters, Deborah, Elizabeth, Marcy, and Patience, all of whom have been disowned by the Society of Friends. And the early preachings of the friend surround sinning and repenting in order to be saved before an imminent judgment day, often focusing on the book of Revelations in the Bible. And these early meetings would be held outside where the friend would preach in a loud voice, reciting lengthy Bible passages from complete memory. And because there's a person standing out in the open giving these sermons, large crowds are attracted. Some regular attendees go as far as becoming what they choose to label themselves as quote-unquote universal friends, followers of the puff, making the friend the first American to newly found a religious community. Wow. However, the friend's teachings were strikingly similar to those of Orthodox Quakers, with many saying that these two groups' teachings are indistinguishable. So it does Mm. seem like they're pulling from... The right, what they, they know. Right, right, what they grew up with. Right. And these new followers include roughly equal numbers of men and women, predominantly under 40. Most are from Quaker backgrounds, despite the Society of Friends' discouragement of the friend and their meetings, disciplining those who attend them. Mm. And as noted in the Wikipedia page, quote, free Quakers, 
disowned by the main society of friends for participating in the American War of Independence, were particularly sympathetic and opened meeting houses to the Universal Friends, appreciating that many of them had also sympathized with the Patriot cause, including members of the Friends family. So there are all of these aspects of the Friends background, including familial relations, that's kind of lending itself to getting all of these new followers and believers of what the friends right. preaching right because they know that if the quakers being former quakers themselves that they're being kind of disconnected or disowned from that group because obviously of like the context of the time of the war so using that as a way to kind of like you said broaden the reach right they're like i maybe have more progressive views than quakers mm-hmm. in believing in this war but i also still believe in the words of the quakers it's like right. the best of both worlds by by listening to the friend right it's very similar to how many of the cast members of the real housewives of salt lake city are former mormons and okay. and um were dis- disowned sort of from the mormon mm-hmm. church still mm-hmm. may support some of those beliefs but mm-hmm. now we're on the real housewives of salt lake city Okay, great. So, like, so many parallels. So many parallels to then and now. Yeah, yeah. It's just uncanny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. By the mid-1780s and 90s, the Friend and the Society of Universal Friends begins traveling all over New England and down into Philadelphia, holding meetings and, and preaching. But the more they travel and the more that they preach the ideology of the group actually grows more and more radically progressive. Mm. So the friend rejects the ideas of predestination and religious election, holding that anyone, regardless of gender, can gain access to God's light and that God speaks directly to individuals who have free will to choose how they act and believe. So they're oh. saying it's not like only men can be in these these positions of power, like anybody can. Right. They also preach the idea of universal salvation. They call for the abolition of slavery, persuading followers who were also enslavers to free those that they actually enslaved. They Hmm. teach gender equality, promoting women, including unmarried women, which a lot of their followers are, into leadership positions. Mm -hmm. The friend preaches to, quote, obey God rather than men, end quote, which is like, yes, if you're religious, yeah, sure. Right. Do right. that. That, make, that would make sense. Right. The most committed followers include roughly four dozen unmarried women known as the Faithful Sisterhood, and these women take on the leadership roles often reserved for men. Mm. The friend, in attempts to preach humility and hospitality, keeps religious meetings open to the public, housing and feeding visitors, including those who don't fully believe in them or their principles. They create cordial relationships with many indigenous peoples and tribes. And although they preach sexual abstinence and disfavor marriage, which like work, I get it, with the marriage thing. So so like fully abstinent life regardless of marriage? Because if they also are right. saying like they do, like do not don't get married. Well, they're saying it's probably not beneficial to you to have sex okay. and to marry in your, someone. In, right. In your like religious and spiritual journey, it doesn't right. further it doesn't that cause. You. Okay. But at the same time, they don't see celibacy as mandatory and accept those who choose to marry. 
So many of their followers do marry, but the portion who choose not to is actually above the national average of the time. So the, the friend is basically being like, in my opinion, it's not worth it to you, but if you want to like, go for it. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to tell you, you can't like do what you want to. It just has to like serve your purpose and fulfill your role. Amazing. Almost as if that's how it should be always. (laughs) Right. By the late 1780s, Popular newspapers and pamphlets cover the Friends' sermons in detail, with most of the papers being intensely and particularly critical of the Puff. They corral opposition to the Friend and the noisy crowds that gather to hear them, and most papers actually focus on the preacher's ambiguous gender rather than the actual theology. But despite the criticism, the friend maintains their popularity and even accompanies Timothy Pickering, the third secretary of state, to talks with the Iroquois that produces the Treaty of Canandaigua, a peace treaty between the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy and the United States after the American Revolutionary War. Wow. So they are like a revered community leader that is trusted enough right. with the United States government to be like a like a peace like a, right, a, a right. bridge between these two communities right they're like a well-recognized and established like clergy person enough right. that like they are like you said tasked with these kind of like mediations right and here the friend gives an impassioned speech to the two parties about the importance of peace and love which reportedly is really liked by the iroquois By the late 1780s, so when the friend's physical form, we'll say, is about 40 years old, the Universal Friends, the society, begin to plan a town for themselves in western New York, and by March of 1790, it's ready enough for them to move into, making it the largest non-native community in western New York. A lot of problems arise at this settlement, however, including discrepancies with the ownership of the land they settle on, with Universal Friends having to buy land, and then the land being sold to financers and British organizations. There's also a confusion with who actually has the title to the land. So it's Mm. like people are selling this land but may not own the land to sell. And so it's just Mm. a bit of a mess. And the constant change in ownership and influx of new settlers attracted by the society's improvements on the area drive the prices up incredibly high. And the community's lack of a solid title to enough land for all of its members drives some universal friends to just straight up get up and leave. So seeing that there's kind of this factor that has members leaving. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that others want to just like outright own their own property and profit off the land, which then meant new members couldn't join because there's a lack of free space. The friend begins to search for new land and areas that their community could move to and expand Mm. on. And they eventually find and purchase a site in the early 1790s along Creek which would then become the town of Jerusalem, New York. And so they live here in Jerusalem And the friend preaches and the universal friends listen and then they go out and preach themselves. The friend lives in a large house at the center of the community with a what they call companion, which on this podcast, we know that's probably not the case. We know what that means. Who goes by the name of Sarah friend and Sarah's daughter. And it also serves as a home for the most vulnerable in the community as well, at one time housing 17 women. 
Wow. Which is like 17 women in a house in the 1790s. Like, this is not a mansion. You know, we don't have like many, many. It's like, this is probably for the time an expansive home, but like 17 people in one house, even to today's standards, is. Right. I guess I can't fathom that. So I have a question about like the layout of the town, I guess. Like, is this more like a commune, like sort of. I don't want to say cult, so I'm not going to say that, but like I'm I'm imagining more like compound communal living or is it like everyone owns, it's just like a suburb, everybody owns their own place and there's like community meeting centers and things like that. It, From what I know, it doesn't sound like people outright own the land. It seems like the land is collectively everybody's. It seems more of like a communist. Okay, type living situation. Right. It doesn't seem like ever the friend is like this is my land and you're living on my land and you do what i say it seems like the friend is like if you want to live here and follow you know our teachings people just come and kind of build their own shelters and whatever okay right 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 and then it seems like their house at the center is used kind of as a meeting Mm. space and a a place for vulnerable Mm. peoples and, and and such Okay, tell me more about this story. I'm I'm intrigued by this, by the progression. The community is a whole operation, and people seemingly live there quite happily. Except, you know, for a a handful of few people, because there's always a few that stray from the pack. So, by the fall of 1799, right at the turn of the century... A few New York state officials, as well as several disillusioned followers, lead multiple attempts to arrest the friend for blasphemy. That's not a crime. Well, right. (laughs) Some historians believe this to be a move motivated by disagreements over land ownership and power which seems to be a likely cause. That that tracks in terms of every disagreement, war mm-hmm. um, that in we've ever had ever history. <laughs> in the world, really. Right, that right. just seems to be the general motivation. Um, right. So I'm willing, I'm willing to uh, hear that argument out. <laughs> so an officer tries to arrest the friend one day while they're out riding horses with another female companion, but the friend, being a skilled rider, escapes. Later, the officer and an assistant attempt to arrest the preacher at their home in Jerusalem, but the women of the house, there's like multiple women there, drive the men off and tear their clothes. So the men are chased out of Jerusalem by the friend's supporters. That's so funny. Finally, a third attempt is made where a posse of 30 men essentially raid the friend's house just after midnight, breaking down the door with an axe, intending to carry the friend off to court. However, There's a doctor that's in this vigilante posse, and he notes that the preacher is in too poor a state of health to be moved, so they make a deal for the friend to appear in court, which they do. But this is kind of a revelation that comes out, that the friend's health is declining. It's not something that seems to be well known. So all of a sudden, because they're being taken to court, it comes out that their health is... Something's going on. Okay. But... So the friend goes to court, they appear in court, the court finds no indictable offense committed by the friend, <laughs> and, right. and then actually invites the preacher to give a sermon to those in attendance. So right. the judge okay. is like, I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. Right. You didn't do like, anything wrong, you're good. Oh, but by the way, do you want to speak? 
Right. Nobody told me about this, but it seems really interesting. Love to hear what you have to say about that. Right. That's kind of all I have on that court case. Okay. It was like... Because there was nothing. There was there's, nothing. There's no... It, it, like, there's, there was no crime or, no, or evidence it's... of a crime or like substantial reason to go through a trial. No. I mean, there like it's it. they didn't like what... Because it wasn't like they brought the friend court over this land ownership and like taking of land. It was like just right. blasphemy of speech, but like, you know, the new right. the constitution, free speech and, and especially with religion and it just, yeah, there like was not enough of a case. Right. That's for not any a crime. Right. That's not like a, a law. And even if it was land ownership, I'm assuming that like land documentation, if there was any, wasn't great. And that. also no. like obviously everybody was just stealing. Like if you just right. sat down on a place for long enough, you could be like, yeah, I own this now. I like, mean, that's just, kind of how it works today too. Right. But so anyway, like I said, by the turn of the century, the public universal friend's health is declining. And so 15 years go by, and it seems like the health is kind of slowly declining. And by 1816, the friend begins to suffer a painful edema, which is a fluid buildup in the body's tissue, which causes the body to swell. And so it was just incredibly painful to just, like, be alive. Right. And over the next few years, the friend continues to receive visitors and give sermons. And in November 1818, the friend gives their final sermon. And then a year later, preaches for the last time at the funeral of their sister Patience in 1819. Mm. And the friend dies on July 1st, 1819, at the age of 66. Following their wishes, no funeral service is held only a standard meeting of the Universal Friends Society. The body is then placed in a coffin with an oval glass window at the top and then buried four days after death in a thick stone vault in the cellar of the friend's house. Years later, the coffin is removed and buried in an unmarked grave in accordance with the preacher's preferences. Obituaries for the friend appear in newspapers across the eastern U.S., and some followers remain faithful. However, their numbers dwindle, and they're pretty unsuccessful at attracting new followers. By the 1860s, the Society of Universal Friends is all but gone. But to this day, the friend's home and temporary burial chamber still stands in the town of Jerusalem, New York. And that is the story of the public universal friend, non-binary preacher and leader of the 18th century. What an interesting story. I truthfully had no idea about that. I kept maybe thinking you were going to tell me this was one of like the earlier pieces of like, there's like unitarianism, universalism, something like that. Yeah. Just like, I guess, because of the similarities of the name. I also was like, is this, are we going to be talking about like a, a fluid cult, like a gender fluid cult? It's like, where are we going? I was so excited. Well, oh, I'm sorry if that disappointed you. No, no, no. You. No, because cults, cults are scary. They're interesting, but they're a little they scary. Are. This truly- This I just mean, seemed like a wholesome little adventure right. and I it loved was, that. It was, a, it was a person who didn't feel that they fit in, you know, mm-hmm. either- you know binary gender and then 
created a following and people accepted it and listened right. to their word and you know it, religion is a whole thing right. in and of itself and you know a whole but they, topic yeah. but they were successful at bringing together a community and preaching incredibly progressive and radical ideas of the time sure. for abolition of slavery for mm -hmm. gender equality for all of these different things and it's interesting because many writers many early writers have tried to portray the friend as this like fraudulent schemer who deceived and manipulated their followers or right. you know it's like they try to make all of these different arguments that there's no substantial backing to and a lot of it does feel transphobic a lot of it does feel mm -hmm. trying to delegitimize this person's you know successful right, it's right. just it's it's such a messy historical topic because i think and sorry to like go on a rant about this, but no, no, no. they didn't have the words for being non-binary or gender fluid back right. then. So there simply just isn't the language. They just thought and it was so, like a grift. Right. And so if if it's unknown, and I think it's something that historians have been de debating for a while, if this new identity came from truly a religious experience and they, they really did feel they were this agent of God that was genderless, mm -hmm. or if they felt what we can now call this like internal binary or internal non-binary identity and then this was the way that they were able to express it and and deal with it and accept it it's right. it's widely debated and it's widely known but the the friend may have just felt like a non-binary person not have the words for it and this was how they were able to take action but then historians over the years are trying to be like well no they knew what they were doing it's like very it's it, it, their interpretations and analyses of events mm -hmm. are very transphobic and harmful right. for right this person which, which we've seen time and time again like just because someone has a phd or conducts research like does not mean they have an unbiased account and we've seen this from no. historians a lot and we've talked mm -hmm. about on the podcast but you know and the things you were describing too like it sounds like both could be true. Like there yeah. was a piece of like a recognizable identity or mm -hmm. like feeling out of place in in an assigned gender and like mm -hmm. wanting to expand outside of that but not having the language. But then right. also feeling like your spirituality gave you that language and like right. gave you a way to make space for yourself and to quite literally make space for others and you know I think it's so interesting that people have that perspective too because you're right there's no way to look at that without it being transphobic because if you wanted to say it was a grift or it was manipulation or whatever well you have to tell me why that would be aside from the gender identity because any other thing you could just attribute those same factors to any other religion and like right. that's not a comment on religion but this this specific practice of spirituality and religion is no different than any other you know mainstream right. religions we could recognize today so right. the difference that you're talking about if you want to say this specific circumstance was manipulation is is transphobic <laughs> and early writers and historians also tried to claim and circulate myths that the friend like bossed around followers and banished them for years and made the married followers divorce and took their property and even attempted and and failed at making the dead rise or walk on what it's like they created okay, all of these Jesus narratives to did try. those things friends 
they tried First to of all. delegitimize this person by making all of these narratives, these false narratives about them being like they were, like you were saying, kind of like a cult leader. They were tricking people and abusing right. people when there's no substantial claims or proof that that was ever the case. Right. Not to mention, again, the other re- religions that were accepted and being practiced mm-hmm. at the time. Those were the ones doing those things. Not that, of course, it would be similarly unjustifiable and upsetting if there was substantial evidence that the friend was doing those same things. But quite literally, this all was established out of the fact that people were being banished from partaking in Quaker services and membership and and that people were being forced into or out of marriages Mm -hmm. and like you just can't say it's not cool no in theory if this one person was potentially doing that because you didn't like that they were like exercising gender fluidity (laughs) right and so that luckily was a lot of early and and historical writers and Mm -hmm. modern writers often portray the friend as a pioneer and an early figure in the history of women's rights and trans rights so Mm -hmm. it does seem like there is a reclamation of the friend into their proper place in history especially giving people queer people queer religious people Mm -hmm. someone to look up to and idolize which i think is important even if you know i'm not religious but i would never i would never try to delegitimize a religious person that can make you feel more right. secure in your identity. Right. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. And like that that's that's what it is of you know we th- th- something may eventually unearth itself that demonstrates mm-hmm. that maybe there was some you know negative behaviors or cult-like behaviors or whatever mm-hmm. but from the information we have it doesn't seem like that's true and I would probably agree that people felt included they felt that there were space for them to exist they felt cared Mm -hmm. for and that's what people wanted at that time Mm -hmm. and needed and benefited from so that's a positive and that's a really cool story yeah so a little lighter than my previous weeks and uh, something that people can hold on to I feel like usually a religious episode I don't know if it would be as as bright but I loved it right thank you thanks Yes, you're so welcome. Okay, well, I am still like, I'm thinking about that's your story today was one of the ones I'm going to go back and do more research on too. I really liked hearing about that. Good. Today, I'm going to round us out by talking about the Dear Abby column and its influence on, you know, public acceptance of queer communities. Okay. Which I'm very excited about. Let's talk about some friggin' newspapers, man. I would love if we, okay. Yes, I would yeah. love that. So sources for today include the Making Gay History podcast episode um, from season one, episode eight, with host Eric Marcus featuring Abigail Van Buren, um, University of Minnesota Continuum article by Lisa Vacoli, a Dear Abby letter marked one of two from October 1999, titled Talking About Being Gay is the Path to Social Acceptance. And then finally, a journalism history podcast, episode number 98, hosted by Nick Hershon and featuring Andrew Stoner. So when I saw this on our topic list, I 
was like, what could it mean? Um, I was really interested in learning more because I am like a sucker for old like Mm -hmm. white women offering like being progressive (laughs) and like short and cute, you know, like the Uh Dr. Ruth documentary on Hulu is one of my favorite things. Like it's just, just an example of of the kind of watch it. It's great. And, and embodies why I think I was so drawn to this topic. Mm -hmm. I also just kind of like wanted to, as I was talking about earlier, like round out our pride episodes with a story about queer acceptance and like, Mm -hmm allyship rather than kind of survival activism that it seems we so often talk about on the show and of course those things are so so important and valuable and meaningful but I think it's nice sometimes to hear a story about someone who didn't have to put in like Mm -hmm. backbreaking labor to advance a cause Mm -hmm. so with that being said we're going to talk about the advice columnist Pauline Phillips, a.k.a. Popo, a.k.a. Abigail Van Buren, a.k.a. Dear Abby. She went by a lot of names. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted, can we do that for each other? Can we make ladders of names? Yeah, absolutely. A family tree, but it's just different nicknames. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Yeah. Oh, I. I, I Coming soon. Okay. Okay. So, interestingly, Pauline Phillips, nicknamed Popo by her family, was born just about a hundred years after the death of the friend on July 4th, who go America, 1918. Mm. Okay. Kind of close, a little bit, sort of. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to tie it in. Yeah, of course. She was born in the very Midwestern town of Sioux City, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Her and her twin sister, Esther Pauline Friedman Letterer, were born to Russian Jewish immigrants. And I say Ooh. all of this kind of background information to shape a little bit of what we're going to talk about later. And those two twin girls, little did anyone know, would grow up to become two of the most famous syndicated columnists of the newspaper era and kind of still to this day. Mm-hmm. Throughout this episode, though, I'm going to talk specifically about Pauline or Dear Abby columns, but her sister Esther did have her own column. It was entitled Ann Landers. And this kind of back and forth, these similarities, the fact that they were twins maybe, um, would fuel this kind of lifelong feud between the sisters. So if you're ever interested, I know that there's background family drama, but this story's not about that. Maybe mm-hmm. you, you can make your own story about that. We've all got like fucked up families. So just imagine. Just Mm -hmm, imagine mm -hmm. what that could be like, but we're not going to get into it. I also really wanted this to be about the Dear Abby column. So Pauline is a really cool lady. Wait, her her name's Pauline? Her name. So so the writer (laughs) of Dear Abby is Pauline Phillips. And then her sister's middle name is? Pauline. How much would that suck to have a twin and it's just yeah. the same name rearranged. Yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. Esther I think was a little outshined by Pauline. Oh, Esther. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, sorry. Yeah. And, and but they each did take like pseudonyms right. as as writers. Right, right. But maybe that's part of the family drama. I don't know. So I'm kind of skipping some of their early background stuff and less about Abby specifically. Mhm. 
and kind of just talking about the column and its impact on kind of like social views and mm-hmm. awareness and acceptance of, you know, queer topics. So on January 9th, 1956, the Dear Abby column was first published in the San Francisco Chronicle. If you've ever seen a Dear Abby or a similar like advice column before, which you may not have, the last time I think I remember seeing one was in like Marley and Me because I don't know when the last time my eyes even like looked at like a physical newspaper, but it basically (laughs) follows the same structure every time where someone will write in to the newspaper, like write in a handwrite a little letter. I guess they had typewriters, typewrite a little letter. Sure. Clickety clack. Yeah. And begin their question or kind of complaint with Dear Abby. And so then they'll write their statement and sign it with however they'd like to be addressed, which is similar mm-hmm. to what we do with our listener stories, send mm-hmm. those in. So the the address at the end may be like a catchy or witty pseudonym. It may be someone's initials. It may be their first name or just like where they're writing from. Then Abby will respond. And then the, resp- the question that was sent in and dear Abby's response will be published in the newspaper under their column. So it's kind of like, for people of our generation, kind of like Ask FM, but for the 50s. Mm -hmm. And similar to Ask FM, many journalism historians have noted that advice columns, especially at this time, aren't really a way to get advice. So Mm -hmm. maybe some people may get like a personal takeaway from them, but because just like logistically how long it takes to first You'd send a letter in the mail. You'd write out your letter. You'd send the letter in the mail. You would have to wait for the response to be received, decided if that's the one that's going to be responded to because Dear Abby was incredibly Mm -hmm. popular and other advice columns as well because I guess people were really bored. And then you would have to check the newspaper because no one's going to tell you which edition it would come out in either. Right. And you have to wait for Abby to type up a draft of the response and then the editors probably of the newspaper and it's it's a whole process that our our generation of instant wouldn't wouldn't survive with right exactly so it's the same you know we're used to literally the other night i put on my instagram story should i dye my hair yes or no like oh i hit no so quickly yeah you did and i did it anyway but i got (laughs) i got you know, you get instant responses and that was Mm -hmm. genuine advice. Like I could have taken something out of that. Right. You didn't, but. (laughs) I didn't. Instead though, responses from columns like Dear Abby became a more efficient tool for gauging or even changing public perception and opinions. Because rather than speaking directly to one person who individually asks you a question or for advice, it ends up reaching a really broad audience because anyone can read it from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So at a time when medical professionals, as we've talked about, other newspapers, writers, publishers, politicians, social workers, pretty much everyone in power was pushing out this idea that homosexuality was a disease, it was an incurable mental illness, it like really impacted moral decency. The Dear Abby column instead began to kind of chip away at that dialogue. 
She eventually helped to open the floodgates and allow a wider, more diverse conversation about queer rights to happen in suburban homes all over the country, rather than this constant barrage of sort of misinformation and like the public discourse being so negative around like LGBTQ issues. Because I wonder if it's like, I mean, she must have known, but there's something about a family sitting around and watching the nightly news, right? It's not mm-hmm. a 24-hour news cycle. So mm-hmm. it's the family sitting together and watching the news and getting all of these things, right? And it's probably all the bad things all right up front, all together, all at once. But if, right. you know, you're sitting down for dinner and your parents are talking about what was in the paper today or, mm-hmm. you know, your dad is reading the paper at the table or your mom is reading the newspaper during the day while she's home, whatever. It's like there's more of an easy, like softer, it's like a soft launch, basically. It's yeah. like an easier integration into human lives and everyday conversation and makes exactly. it a little bit less like drastic and, you know, like this right. is an imminent thing that's a right. threat that's happening right now. Exactly, because if you're not seeing it, and a lot of people, you know, of course, queerness was existing, queer identities, queer people existed, Mm -hmm. but because of this narrative, probably weren't as open. So if people aren't able to see it in their quiet little communities, Mm -hmm. they probably feel like it doesn't exist and are more likely and more primed to believe all of this terrible stuff they hear if they can't see just like normal conversations. Right about normal people right if it's consistently always this highly politicized negative thing that's the only way they're ever going to think about it exactly so in one of her most famous or possibly infamous i guess depending on who you're asking Mm -hmm. responses which was published on may 3rd 1973 abby receives a letter asking dear abby About four months ago, the house across the street was sold to a, quote, father and son, or so we thought. We later learned it was an older man, about 50, and a young fellow, about 24. This was a respectable neighborhood before this odd couple moved in. They have all sorts of strange-looking company. Men who look like women, women who look like men, blacks, whites, Indians. Yesterday, I even saw two nuns go in there. They must be running some sort of business or a club. There are motorcycles, expensive sports cars, and even bicycles parked in front and on the lawn. They keep their shades drawn so you can't see what's going on inside, but they must be up to no good. Or why the secrecy? We called the police department and they asked if we wanted to press charges. No. They said... Just, uh, <laughs> that they is, said... You can't. You can't. You can't. No, you can't. No. Okay, no. sorry. No. First of all, first of all, this sounds like a really fun place to hang out. Like yeah, maybe just ask to go hang out. Right, like sorry so, that your life is boring, Brenda. Yes. It's not it's not our problem. So we called the police department and they asked if we wanted to press charges. They said unless the neighbors were breaking some law, there was nothing they could do. Correct. Wow, common sense. That's how it the works. Police. Wow. Okay, good. Abby, these weirdos are wrecking our property values. How can we improve the quality of this once respectable neighborhood? Signed, Uh up in arms. So this was the message. Abby's Mm -hmm. response was a curt three words. Oh. She writes, dear up, you could move, period. (laughs) So that, that... Yes, <laughs> you Abby. Find it funny? So, yeah, I did. Abby, so this yeah. this is 
her kind of most notable response. So again, this comes about 20, nearly 20 years after the start of the Dear Abby column. And she says, you know, people were not as fixated on asking about LGBTQ issues Mm-hmm. until late 60s early 70s when this message sure. comes in but yeah that that's kind of like her one really big i mean she had many others but this is kind of the most famous column response because mm-hmm. this person is just kind of going on a rant and abby said or i'm sorry pauline i say abby because mm-hmm. that's just a name but her name is pauline pauline yeah. so Pauline, in a later interview, says that she did want to make a joke in response to this, and people did take it as a joke and thought it was kind of Mm -hmm. a funny response, as we both did. But she also wanted, in her response, to emphasize the message. And in her words, she says, they have a right to be there. If you don't like it, you could move because they have as much a right to be them as you have to be yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's what she says of like, it kind of was a waste of my time to answer that question. But at the same time, I felt strongly that like, what are you complaining about? Like, there's nothing. If you don't like it, go away. Right. Which No one's bothering you. It kind of, the first thought I had when the question was asking about, you know, what can we do to get these people out of our neighborhoods is like Mm -hmm. very much when black families would move into white, predominantly white neighborhoods and they would chase them out or white flight, you know, when Mm -hmm. white families would up and leave. And it's like, yeah, you can leave because that's your fucking problem. But it's like, that's the first. It's just like whenever, I think in the context you're describing too, was really, obviously there was a negative outcome to all of that as well, especially Mm -hmm. white flight. Like it created really like huge wealth and income Mm -hmm. disparities and Mm -hmm. and and like low-income neighborhoods and things like that but i think the the point stands to and what abby seems to be talking about here is like specifically white suburban people were Mm -hmm. constantly like genuinely afraid like racist and homophobic about anything that was different than their like Stepford wives little tended garden home. Right. And that, and that there's nothing to, no one is bothering you. This is not a call the police moment. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like this Mm -hmm. is not, no one is doing anything to you except it sounds like having a cool ass fucking party. Right. I would get like a noise complaint maybe if you called in a noise complaint. Sure. But the fact that they're just existing and living in a house across the street. Mm -hmm. That's the first one's mentioned, like property value in some way. And And it reflects the perception of what, especially like gay men and, mm-hmm. and you know, queer people of color and mm-hmm. lesbian women, what their experience was like when they just tried to exist in neighborhoods that were unwilling to sort of receive them. Right. So like I was mentioning, Pauline says things were not as controversial until the late 60s and early 70s when there was sort of this moral reckoning and a, especially a shame associated with a lot of things, especially mm-hmm. sexual things and queerness. Still, though, Abby says her columns were never blocked from being published or were censored at all, which I found interesting, Mm -hmm. though she did receive hate mail often. Mm -hmm. So many would mimic sort of this similar structure as well, where people would say that she's going to burn in hell. And in one instance, she recalls, quote, the fundamentalist types would say that they would say you should be saved. 
People want to show me the light. They think I'm misguided. They say, you're a good Christian woman. I always write back to them and say, thank you. You're very kind. But I hope I'm a good Jewish person because I am Jewish. (laughs) Unquote. So, like, that's just kind of her, again, goes to Mm -hmm. her kind of perspective on the whole thing of, like, she's getting hate mail and she doesn't kind of, she only responds to the one to correct what her religion mm-hmm. is <laughs> and and it's again kind of about the backlash that she was receiving but she did feel really strongly about these things like she wasn't mm-hmm. doing it to to get recognition from it she was just like right. you are all being kind of weird about this and but i mean also because she's a russian jew growing up in iowa that can't mm-hmm. be the most accepting place through her childhood so i'm sure she's right. used to dealing with a lot of people that don't have similar beliefs right. and values as she does. So it seem it, it would seem to me that it's only natural that she stands up for other people and is kind of like, I don't really care what you have right. to say about me. You know, exactly. a, a, a thick skin. I think her upbringing is important as well. She talks about the influence and I didn't include a ton on this, but she mm-hmm. talks about the specifically queer issues being important to her because of gay gay men she had in her life as well as you know medical professionals Mm -hmm. in the 50s that she was close friends with who had said this is all bullshit the fact that they're saying that these are diseases Mm. and that's not that's not correct that doesn't make sense that doesn't track we don't believe that so that was kind of how she was influenced and felt really strongly about these things Mm -hmm. because probably like you said the things she experienced but also seeing what her friends experienced and that the people in her life she surrounded herself with supported the same things and especially probably stranger she lives in san francisco right or that's what she's getting published in like that's a pretty queer friendly city i mean not as much as it is now but i would say more progressive than a lot of other places exactly and that as well is some of the comparison that could be seen in her sister's Mm-hmm. articles and columns which are published in Minneapolis and are far less progressive. Still mm-hmm. still more progressive but less probably mm-hmm. because Abby was publishing like you were saying in San Francisco. Right. So many people including those podcasters and researchers that were mentioned in the episode as my sources and journalists who regard Abby's repeated declarations of acceptance and affirmation for queer communities as iconic, groundbreaking, and personally transformative for them or their families. I personally found Abby's unwillingness to be hailed as a hero or a progressive challenger, but simply a bold, witty, and sometimes cheeky writer who felt that there should be nothing controversial about her opinions to be pretty refreshing, especially at the time. Mm-hmm. Abby certainly helped shape and challenge the public narrative around LGBTQ plus issues and shed light on people and stories that for so long were pushed to the margins. Mm. And By talking openly about this queer existence, joy, and love, Abby helped to normalize those things, demonstrating the importance of meaningful representation and allyship. In 2002, Pauline's daughter, Jean, took the helm of the syndicated Dear Abby column after writing alongside her mother since she was a teenager. Jean has since continued the fight to protect and enhance civil rights for the queer community, Pauline passed away in 2013 at age 94 after living with Alzheimer's disease since the mid-1980s. Oh my god. 
I want to close, though, with a Dear Abby letter and her response from 1999. So the writer says, Dear Abby, I was lunching with five or six co-workers the other day, and the topic turned to gay rights. During the conversation, one of them said, I don't know why they have to talk about it. I was shocked speechless because everyone at the table knew that I am gay. Later, I thought of all the things I should have said. Then I compiled a list of reasons why we talk about it. If you think it's worthwhile, please print it on October 11th, because that is National Coming Out Day. Signed, Ed in Long Island, New York. So, Abby responds, Dear Ed, whether to come out or not is a personal decision, and one that should not be taken lightly. However, your reasons present a strong argument in favor of doing so, and I'm pleased to print them on National Coming Out Day to encourage those who might be hesitant about identifying themselves. It's okay to be gay, and it's okay to be yourself. So these are Ed's reasons why we talk about it. One, until we started talking about it, laws were enacted by straight people telling gay people what they were and were not allowed to do. 45 years ago, nothing could be sent through the U.S. mail about love or intimacy between gay people. 30 years ago, openly gay people could be fired from government jobs. We would be expelled from most schools. The governments could close bars that had lesbian and gay patrons. We couldn't be priests or ministers, and we were banned from many professional organizations. 25 years ago, we could be jailed or institutionalized for being gay. Laws still exist that prevent gay people from adopting, that take our children from us, that allow us to be jailed for making love to our partners, that permit straight people to refuse to rent to us or serve us in restaurants for no other reason than that we are gay. It was talking about it that led to the repeal of hundreds of those laws. If we didn't talk about it, enlightened people wouldn't be teaching their children that it's wrong to call people the F-slur and that it's wrong to treat gay people differently from straight people. My parents never told me otherwise. If we didn't talk about it, street people wouldn't know who we are, nor would they realize that their friend, co-worker, sibling, parent, or child is gay. When straights don't know that someone they love is gay, they often don't stop to think about how unfair it is that gay people can be legally discriminated against in 37 states. We talk about it because many of us grew up thinking we were alone because nobody talked about it. I talk about it because otherwise straight people tell me anti-gay jokes and use anti-gay language in front of me. I talk about it because so many other people cannot. In the U.S., military men and women lose their jobs for saying I am gay, which should be a direct violation of their First Amendment rights. I talk about it because I want folks to see that most gay people are average people, not the monsters that straight people are taught that we are. Prejudice like this is the reason that many gay men and women are beaten up or murdered in the streets. I talk about it because my straight friends are surprised when I say that a movie they liked was awful, completely missing the fact that the gay characters were outdated stereotypes. Finally, I talk about it because I want the children in my family to know that you can be gay and a good person. I want to counterbalance all those who are deceitful, misinformed, or have been misinterpreted by the word of God. So that's something that Abby published, and I just kind of wanted to share to wrap up our episode today. Yeah, that's a great end note. And I think also a great end note to Pride Month. Mm -hmm. We need to keep talking about these things. We can't be quiet about it. You shouldn't feel like you need to be secret about your identity. You should not have to come out. You should be able to just live as your authentic self without having to make some big declaration. But that's 
the only way that we get to that is by talking about these things and by bringing issues to the table and making others aware about what queer people face and you know other other marginalized communities face and so with each conversation that is had hopefully you know we can hope that more progress is being made and more eyes are being opened and more minds are being changed and widened and mm-hmm. more accepting etc 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 so i would say keep having conversations don't stop having conversations especially don't stop having conversations because people want you to stop having conversations mm-hmm. say the word gay say the word trans say the word queer mm-hmm. be loud be proud yeah. <laughs> and don't feel like you have to hide no and in the meantime as we continue to talk about it and make lots of progress because we'll never stop Mm-mm. you today and every day are valid you're supported you're beautiful you're loved and you're valuable to us and to mm-hmm. lots of other people in this world so we thank you for existing and being you today and every day absolutely thanks for tuning in to episode 21 of historically really good friends where we talked about some preachers preaching the good word This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even reading a newspaper a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. Make sure to send your personal stories to us either through DM or to our email at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. And we hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. And happy Pride Month. Bye. Happy Pride Month.